Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books and Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with author Christina Adams, and Adams has something of a surprising muse. Camels. That's right, camels. One hump, two humps, crossing the Egyptian desert or the Siberian tundra. Adams' muse is surprising because she lives, like many of us, in North America. Orange County, California, to be exact. That's not the place where you'd expect someone to develop a deep fascination and a deep respect for camels. And yet, this improbability makes Adam's new book, Camel Crazy, all the more intriguing, as she becomes, by turns, a smuggler, an activist, a scientist, a world traveler, and, in the end, an advocate, not just for camels, but for our public health, our environment, and for her son. He's a child on the autistic spectrum, and Adam's love for him becomes a beautiful and passionate engine that ultimately leads her to start a movement that may just transform how we see camels and how we see and treat autism. Christina Adams, welcome to the New Books Network. It's a delight to be here today, Eric. I'm looking very forward to our conversation. So, you know, I've had the the kind of gift of talking to a lot of different authors, and often I'll get off of finishing a book and I'll order some of the, the author's other books because I'm very excited or I'll go check out something that they mention. Yours is the first book I've ever read where I finished the book and I was so fascinated that I went online and I bought a week's worth of camel milk. Oh, nice. <laughs> so it's shipping. It's on the way. Can you tell me a little bit about what I might expect? Okay, so first of all, I know you're a person with a, uh, an, a wonderful open mind that absorbed what's in this book, and now you're going to get to discover it for yourself, and so I love that. And what you will find when you get your camel milk is that, first of all, you're going to have cognitive dissonance when you open the package because, you know, you're going to be like, oh, this is from a camel, so that'll be fun. And then the other part is uh, when you first, um, you know, get it. Now, did you get powder or did you get liquid? I got liquid. Okay. So when you get the liquid, you know, you're going to see how it just looks like any milk. And it's, you know, nice, white, clean, attractive milk. And and then you're going to, uh, you know, decide to do whatever you do. You might use the smoothie recipe in the back of Camel Crazy, the new book. Or maybe you're just going to do a straight shot, which is really what I recommend. And so uh, you're going to say, oh, it tastes just like milk because that's the number one thing people ask me. What does it taste like? And once they taste it, they say, oh, it just tastes like milk. So, but I think you might, depending on, you know, your own response to the milk and what kind you're kind of getting, you might have that really, you know, interesting kind of whooshing sensation that I had when I first drank camel milk. Mine was very powerful milk from the desert in uh, the Middle East. But, um, you know, you might get that or you might not get anything and you might just think, oh, well, what's the big deal? But then after you enjoy it for a while, I I predict you're going to get a little bit hooked on it. I think if you had asked me before I encountered your book, you know, Eric, would you be interested in trying camel milk? I probably would have been game like, okay, let's try this or something like that. But the story you tell is so fascinating and so multidimensional that I couldn't just not. And um, I love the way that books can somehow create these new possibilities for us. And I wonder if you'd take us back to, to the start of your journey. 
Um, you know, there's this this moment where you encounter a camel and you suddenly start to have these ideas and and thus begins the really it's a kind of epic journey. It takes you around the world, it takes you into the realms of scientific study, into the world of political activism. It take it it transforms your family. It's fascinating. So how did it start for you? Well, thank you, Eric. Um, it feels kind of epic to me, but on the other hand, uh, you know, it's nice to hear from a reader like yourself that, you know, you kind of get the sweep of what this is kind of meant for myself and then other people. So Camel Crazy was not a book I ever envisioned writing, but I am a writer. I have been, you know, my most of my career. And so I was just minding my own business at a children's book festival in Orange County, California. And I saw a camel there and no kids were riding it. And I was just like, I mean, I'm always a nosy journalist type of person. I just like to know what's going on. And so I just thought, why is no, you know, why is this camel here if no kids are riding it? My son was seven years old at the time. He had autism, but he was happy reading his book in the grass. And I had already written my first book about him and getting him better called A Real Boy, A True Story of Autism, Early Intervention and Recovery. And during that uh, odyssey, uh, I learned all about, you know, biomedical things and kind of the scientific background of autism and and how much food can make a difference in many of the um, children and adults functioning. So with that background, not knowing I would need it, I walk over to find out about this camel. And I saw a guy with a, a hat on and he was selling soap and lotion made from camel milk. And then for some reason, I'll never know why, I said, well, what else did they do with this milk? And he said, it's given to premature infants in hospitals in the Middle East because it's thought to be non-allergenic and it might be close to human breast milk. And that was the light bulb moment uh, based on all that research I had done. And I guess you could call it intuition or which is just, you know, pattern recognition. Um, I just had that idea that, A, this, this milk might help kind of reboot my son's immune system and perhaps then increase his functioning, uh, better speech and things like that. Um, because I always knew that his immune system was tied to what he ate and therefore how he functioned, and B, that it might make a great dairy substitute for people that couldn't handle cow milk. My son could not handle any other milks, except finally I found one made out of a potato that didn't bother him or set off his allergic response, and I was getting real tired of that potato milk, and it <laughs> would have been nice to have an animal milk, um, because those milks uh, do tend to build up bone health very well, so uh, that's when I just went, okay, I'm going to go home. And I just looked on the computer and there was nothing but like four weird articles about wound healing in 1972 in Russia and, you know, the difficulties of making cheese out of camel milk because it didn't coagulate like other milks. But I just kept on going and going. And then a few months later, I found an article that they, that uh, um, two uh, science people had given some autistic kids camel milk in uh, Israel and they got better. And that was a short term thing. So I didn't know like what that meant for the long term, but I thought I'm on the right path. And that's when it really branched out into this uh, kind of, you know, odyssey thing <laughs> that we're talking about. Well, and you followed that intuition and you just went for it, right? I mean, I you, sure did. Yeah. I mean, you know, I never knew what th this is what I was going for. I mean, this whole adventure and, uh, all the things I've done in writing a book and all that. But, you know, when you think you find something that feels like I just need to do this, it's rare. I mean, those moments are rare in life. Um, but I guess when it came to autism, my first thing was I've, when he, my son was first diagnosed, I thought, I don't even know what this is, 
but I will go anywhere and I will do anything to help him. So that was my first thing the few years before I found out about camel milk or had my idea. And then when I just heard about camel milk, it just was like a natural thing. I didn't even know what I was doing, but I just knew I have to find it. So tell us how you became a smuggler. Well, uh, I didn't know. You know, I looked, I tried to find camels in America. You couldn't find anything. There was some like single website at the time that said they sold camels, but they never wrote me back. And people in the animal world, you know, can be a little bit worried about who's approaching them. Uh, now that I'm in the animal world, I, I understand that. But back then, you know, no one wrote me. I couldn't find anything. I talked to lots of people. No one ever knew anything. But then uh, I was um, friendly with uh, a Pakistani uh, person. He lives here in uh, California, and he was going to Israel. And he said, I think they have camels and camel milk in Israel. I'll bring you some back. And so he did. But then they dumped it at uh, JFK because, you know, he just was bringing it in and uh, didn't get any special, you know, letters or anything to support that. And he said, well, good news is I got it. Bad news is it's gone. Here's a phone number, though, for you to call in Israel. So I called somebody over, you know, over and woke somebody up and they uh, said, well, you know, call this person. So I called that person. And that person uh, ended up supplying me camel milk, but his English was very limited at the time. And he said, and I was asking him science questions, and he's like, well, call this person. So then that was how I got connected to uh, Dr. Amnon Gonen, who I, uh, you know, describe in the book. And we started Skyping. He was um, an Israeli-American uh, cancer researcher and really brilliant guy. And so he knew a lot about camel milk, and I knew a lot about autism. And so together we kind of put this theory uh, together on how it would, you know, probably impact inflammation. And there may be some other reasons why it would help in autism. And so he said, okay, um, I'm going to get some camel milk in the United States for a family member of his. And I know you want some and let's see if this works. And so I got, you know, doctor's letter to show that it was needed by my son. And, uh, it was flown in through, uh, LAX, uh, by a person a family, and I got some, and I couldn't believe I was holding it in my hands, bottles of raw, frozen Bedouin camel milk, and uh, boy, was that an out-of-body moment. But then I got, you know, another letter from uh, another doctor and started bringing it in, and uh, every single time, you know, you just didn't know if it was going to make it or not. You didn't know, was it going to survive that long, long trip from the desert to the, you know, El Al um, in Israel? And then that long trip on the plane and then through customs and suitcases and then into my hot little hands. And so unbelievably, like every single time I've done it, um, it has always survived. And we were lucky enough to have people support it along the way. Once people heard what it was for, it was just so moving. Everybody said, you know, they're, they're like, send blessings to your son, you know, send our best wishes to this mother and child. Like it was really, really special. That's amazing. And I, I know everyone must be wondering, well, what, what happened, right? You brought it home. <laughs> I brought it home. And uh, so that's kind of like, you know, in Camel Crazy, that's where I, I talk about this. I'd like to bring the reader along with me because, you know, I am a writer and this is my second memoir. But um, it, it was really suspenseful because I didn't know. Nobody knew. I mean, my son was kind of patient zero. You had those kids in Israel. But... 
you know, that was just a short-term study. No one knew anything, you know, other, I didn't have a connection to find out about them at that time. And so no one knew anything. And so I was determined to give it to them, but I wanted, you know, being of the scientific bent that I had become, I wanted to give it in a scientific manner where we could, you know, kind of blind it, not tell people that he was on it and have some, you know, behavioral people take data because my son had already had an intensive behavioral program and, you know, they take data every five seconds on the kids when they're teaching them. So he, and then he had all this blood work and he was having regular medical appointments. So this kid is, you know, data, data, data. So I thought, I want to give it the right way. Um, But at that time, he didn't have any behavioral services. He didn't have any, anyone to help, you know, help me do it in that manner. And so I just kept waiting. I just kept waiting to try to get that support. But then it got to the point where he started regressing. And this does happen in autism sometimes. Like he just, you know, their biochemistry changes as they age, as they grow, uh, different things just change. And so he just started having really, really out of control behavior again, climbing up the ceiling in ladders, hanging off the balcony in my condo because I was a single mom again by that time. Well, first time I was a single mom, but you know, with autism, you always feel like a single mom because mm-hmm. it's so hard. <laughs> even the dads, you know, it's, it's hard even when you're married. So I didn't have anyone to help me watch him then because I was, uh, you know, separated and divorcing his father. So it's very difficult to keep him alive. And it got to the point that, um, it just was time to give him the milk out of sheer desperation. And I had been flying it in and stockpiling it. And I had the, you know, permission from, um, I was being helped, you know, at, at, at uh, an airport by a wonderful, you know, uh, official who knew what I was doing. And I had the medical letters, but I hadn't given it yet. So it was just a moment of desperation. So at bedtime, four ounces with this cereal. And I was just exhausted by everything I was doing by then. And so I had just like this faint hope that something would happen. And in the morning when he woke up, he was so different. It was actually shocking. Tell us about the difference. Well, so. <laughs> I mean, first of yeah. all, here here is this like improbable transnational story of of love and support and tenacity and improbability suddenly coming down to a moment in the kitchen where a mom is absolutely understandably exhausted and pushes over the cereal bowl and then night comes, morning comes. What do you see? And, yeah. So at that time, also got a, a little tiny romance woven in here because luckily for me, um, I had found this most wonderful man and he um, had started, he had three children of his own. And so he knew, you know, what p- parenting of a regular type of kid looked like. And uh, he did the smartest thing because uh, if you want to court a uh, a mother of a child with autism coming over and helping them get their child ready for school is about the best thing you could do in the world. And so he had started doing that. I mean, just a wonderful guy. And uh, he also was in the health kind of sector. So very smart guy. And, you know, he never blinked an eye in my whole autism, camel milk, blah, blah, blah thing. He just was like, whatever you do obviously works. So um, let's try it. He told me, just try it. What are you holding on to this milk for? So that morning, you know, he came over And uh, he just started doing that. You know, I never asked him. He came over. He started helping me, you know, grind the medications. At that time, I was having to grind medications and, you know, getting them out of bed and helping them dress because motor skills and autism are mean that it's hard for them to kind of put on their shoes, to put on their clothes, to get organized, to brush their teeth. It's just all very 
you know, uh, difficult. So he was nine at that time. My son had just turned nine. And so, um, you know, it was time for him to get ready. And my boyfriend said, okay, I'm going to go upstairs and check on him. And he said, he said, and then he came down, he said, he says he'll be here in a minute. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard that before. Um, so then he did, he started coming down the stairs in this two bed, you know, this two level condo. And I noticed he wasn't dragging his feet as much as he normally did. And then he sat at the table and I give him his normal, you know, waffle and turkey sausage and organic and all that stuff. And um, then he started cutting his food with a knife and a fork and it wasn't slipping all over and splashing the syrup and like it usually did. And he was actually cutting it better. And then he just started uh, being, you know, more uh, outwardly focused. He said things like, um, you know, mom, I really love you. I really love you guys. You're great. You do so much for me. You make my medicines, you make my food. And just like, oh, wow. So my boyfriend was there on one, you know, one side, I'm on the other side. And neither of us are saying anything because we don't really know, you know, like what's going to go on. And then um, he was just saying like really amazing things. And his eye contact was somewhat better. Um, And then uh, he was just calm and composed. He wasn't like rolling his head on his collar or doing some of these kind of stim kind of tick looking things that you might see sometimes in a person with autism. And so then he got down. And he put on his own shoes and he picked up his own backpack and he said, okay, well, who's taking me to school today and who's picking me up? So those kind of things are a big deal uh, for a child with autism to like do their own things like that and to think ahead. You know, you can call them um, gross motor and fine motor skills. You can call them executive functioning, uh, the ability to kind of conceive and plan out um, something. So that was new and uh, it was kind of amazing. And so then, um, you know, my boyfriend took him to school and he came back and we just had this discussion because I was like, I don't want to say anything like we have to do reporting without influencing each other. And so I asked him, what did you think? And he goes, he was just a totally different kid. I did not know that he had that in him. It was just unbelievable. And so I said, same thing, like, I, I'm, I'm so shocked. And so within a couple of days, my son could uh, cross the street, look both ways and cross the street. And I didn't have to hold on to his collar, which is another thing you have to do sometimes with the kids, parents, um, of kids with autism. And so he's like, let go. You know, he wanted to cross the street by himself and he did it safely. And, uh, then, um, the improvements just continued. He was so much calmer. He was so much better. And then I noticed it started working systemically. He had always had these little bumps on his cheeks and behind his arms and, uh, those are kind of signs, you know, that you have an allergic response, that you're having, you know, immune function in your body. And he, I had thought he was controlled for inflammation. I, he was on medicines. He was on the best diet I could manage, but it turned out, guess what? He really wasn't. And the camel milk made that clear up. And so it, it took, that took a little bit longer, a few more weeks, but it was just incredible. And so, um, he, you know, tested with, uh, uh, college level vocabulary and he was nine, and he was just so much calmer. He slept better. He was just so much better. It was amazing. And then it's kind of complicated, but in autism, sometimes they have to have like antifungals because they can't process things like carbohydrates um, and yeasty type of foods like we do. Sometimes it will make them actually kind of act giddy or foolish or kind of drunk and cause them to have skin outbreaks in various parts of their body. And so the camel milk like took over that function and he was able to go off those antifungal meds and it just smoothed him out. So as the years rolled on, uh, 
he's the kind of guy that like if he would eat too much bread, then suddenly he's acting drunk like a like a drunk frat boy, you know, goofy, obnoxious, silly. He can't stop laughing, you know. And so I give him the camel milk and boom, in 15 minutes, he's back to normal and apologizing for, you know, his behavior. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so maybe one kind of person would dub that a huge success and, and take a break, right? Um, sit down and say, oh my gosh, I've, I've managed to make these connections. I've managed to bring this to my son. I've seen the change. I've seen the effect. I think one of the admirable things that we see in Camel Crazy is that you, you have, as you said, patient zero. You see the success with, um, with your son and then you start moving forward to see what can be done for the general good. And you do this not only by writing articles that can reach the general public, um, but also then working with scientists in the scientific literature. I don't normally talk to authors who do peer-reviewed medical journals and you know, works for the common reader out there sort of in the public sphere. So can you tell us a little bit about how that, that energy continued forward? Well, with autism, there are no breaks. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, and some people, they do settle, you know, they're like, well, this is how he is. This is whatever. And, and you know what, that's, it's kind of like when you're, when your child has autism, you have to have two things. You have to a accept that your child has autism and, and, you know, know them for who they are and support them the way they are. You have to be, in my opinion, also do everything you can to help them be the best that they can be. So, that's me. I'm able to hold those dualities in my mind. It's hard for a lot of people, but I do. And so I don't want to change my child's personality. I want to make him blossom and see who he is meant to be. And so I guess I've always wanted that not only for him, but for other people. So I had a career behind me, you know, where I started kind of working in the Pentagon and then I went to other forms of government, aerospace, things like that. So that had kind of given me the ability to kind of see the big picture and work through, you know, a lot of systems that don't, that might be difficult to work through, chain of command, I might call it. And so uh, when I came in, then I went and got my MFA, and um, that was in creative writing uh, fiction. But right after that, I'd written a novel, probably would have gotten it published, I'd like to think, you know, um, we never know, but I think maybe. And uh, then my son was diagnosed, though. So I just said, okay, I'm going to keep writing, I'm going to keep writing. But it turned slowly, of course, my world turned to autism. And so I was just like, once I got into that world, I realized, hey, all these gatekeepers don't tell the parents what they need for these kids. They have all these rights, the kids do, and entitlements, but no one wants to tell because they don't want to pay. And I found that outrageous, and I realized no one's telling that story. So I wrote an editorial for the LA Times back then, which set off a mini firestorm and helped change some things, which was good. Um, so I guess I just have this kind of activist side um, that I just want other kids to get better and I want other parents to be helped. So that's how it is. And I had done that before with the real boy. And uh, this camel thing, though, it's so easy. Like camel milk is natural and it's so um, good for you, even if you don't have the kind of kid where all of a sudden, you know, they have a lot of improvements or the improvements are slower. Nonetheless, it's an excellent nutrition. So I just thought, why don't all these other parents get at least the opportunity? And um, and there was no one else doing it. I mean, I'm I'm not a scientist. I've kind of turned myself into a science, um, you know, communications person, and by kind of quote pioneering this therapy. 
but there was no one else doing it. I mean, you did have the great publications from um, Dr. Yagil and um, the other doctor in Israel, um, which showed food allergies too. Um, but, you know, that didn't seem like it was happening on a larger scale, and certainly not in this country, or as it turned out, almost any country. So I just thought it needs to be done. I'm going to do it. And uh, so I just started really reaching out. I met camel people. I, you know, showed up at camel farms, not knowing what the heck is a camel farm even look like. I didn't know what shoes to wear. You know, is it a muddy lot? I'm going to wear boots or is this a fancy industrial place? Um, So I just slowly, and I met camels and I was like, whoa, these things could bite your head off if they want. But the more I learned about them, the more amazing and wonderful they are. And they're a historically... um, valuable and very revered creature. I mean, these ancient cultures have used camel milk for healing for, for, you know, centuries and centuries, but they haven't been faced with autism on the scale that we are now. So they knew about the, you know, traditional healing of camel milk and might I also add urine and meat, but they did not know about autism and like these new disorders and even diabetes and things. So there was some literature on that eventually, but um, so I thought, okay, this is so great really is undiscovered and I might as well just go into it. So I did write an article um, that was a mainstream article in 2012 that went viral and helped kickstart the industry. And um, then in 2013, I did write the scientific article and I'm happy it's been cited maybe 13 times now by other researchers. And But it did change the way I wrote. So um, I still have my literary side, but now I can you know look at a study and, and kind of whack it up to pieces a little bit. Well, tell us a little bit about, I mean, one of the the epic things about the book is that you're suddenly going all around the world. You're going to India, you're going to Dubai um, in order to understand camels. And I'm, my guess is that, that while we'll have listeners around the world, the majority of them are going to be on the North American continent. Um, and so to just try to imagine our ways into lives where camels are integral. I can imagine that, you know, when I was reading, I was trying to think like, oh, well, you know, the way in which Northern America used to be a horse culture up until industrialization and how it's it's impossible to imagine human development um, without horses. Can you take us into this world where the the camel is, is so central, it would be impossible to imagine human life without it. That is a very good parallel of the use of the horse, um, you know, to uh, develop this country. Uh, Pretty much the camel has been the workhorse of um, a building block of society. And even though largely in other cultures and other countries, all those things that they did to transport the goods through the Silk Road to the ports that came to England that, you know, that, eventually influenced what we do here in North America, that those things literally did come in on the backs of camels. So like it or not, or know about it or not, we are, um, you know, a camel um, influenced culture, but you'd never know that. So it was really amazing for me because, you know, like I say at the beginning of the book, it was like camels. I just get this image of, you know, a, a pyramid and a palm tree way back in you know, Egypt. So that's really all they meant to me. And so I didn't even know we had that many in America. And so uh, it started here. You know, I met my first nomadic person and he was so kind as every one of them has been to me. 
and invited me to come to his country. And he's telling me, oh, yes, we do this with the camel in Niger. You know, we we live for it. We do this and that. And I was like, Niger, where is that? Like, it sounds so far away. Um, it has sandstorms and things. But I, I was very intrigued and I would like to go there, but it's not a great place to visit right now from a security standpoint. But um, so that was like my first introduction, like, wow, people that love living there and don't want to live in the United States. So, you know, with our ethnocentric, you know, U.S. viewpoint, that was a great thing for me to hear. And uh, then I went on and, and started, you know, meeting more people. So um, I interviewed the wonderful Somali people. We have, you know, uh, maybe 25, 30,000 Somali people living in San Diego. And so I got to know them and I went down and I talked to them and, you know, they relate to me how camels form the basis of their lives. And those men are elderly now on the older side and the women, and they are much healthier and more fit than the, their descendants that are growing up right now on the streets of San Diego. And so they were telling me, you know, all the ways that they lived with camels and helped it founded their very, you know, uh, meaning of what it means to be Somali, because um, I call them the most camel crazy country in the world, and they are. And so uh, in that that part where I talk with the Somali people in the book, um, it really opened my eyes to, you know, how essential it was. You know, the bride price was paid in camels are the equivalent. Um, If you don't have camels, you die. So basically in the other countries, you know, that's that's kind of the bottom line. Camels, if you needed them and you didn't have them, you would die in the Middle East and then certainly parts of India. So, you know, there's nomadic saying, you know, uh, something about, um, you know, water is the the life, but milk is the soul or the something like that, vice versa. But it's very essential. So then, you know, when I got invited to Dubai uh, because of the science article I did, um, I'd been to Dubai before, but just in a casual way. Um, I hadn't done any, wasn't there for camels. So going there and you know, going into this amazing farm uh, where there were 3,500 camels that are gleaming and washed and, you know, like this beautiful, you know, copper-colored mirage floating before my eyes, you know. That was just like an incredible moment for me. And then tasting their wonderful camel milk and, you know, they have the resources to to make this, you know, impeccable camel milk that's, you know, flash pasteurized in seconds and, and uh you know, it tastes really, really good. And, um, you know, then they can make it into powder, into cheese, into the liquid. And um, that was just an incredible time. And then, you know, going into the camel race with the Bedouin, which I didn't expect. I was, I found myself suddenly in a camel race, you know, in a 10 kilometer uh, track, um, kind of keeping my head sort of low, because I don't think that's a woman thing to do normally. Um, that was amazing. And, so, you know, you get to see what the camel means to the Arab culture, which is a big deal. Falcons, camels, um, and, you know, a couple other things are really in the date. The date is very important because those things were all things that helped, you know, uh, keep you alive and entertained um, back when there wasn't much other than sand. And, you know, they lived in a, a, a harder year lifestyle. And, you know, Dubai was a pearl diving village, you know, so um, now look at it. And then... Um, you know, I went to uh, India, um, invited there to help, you know, tell that these this dying camel culture, unfortunately, called the Rika, and they are very amazing people. They believe they were created by Lord Shiva to take care of camels, and they have lived that for, you know, centuries. It's their faith. It's their lifestyle. 
but you know, they'd never heard of autism. They didn't, they weren't dairy people. They just used it themselves, but they were camel breeders and it was taboo to sell camel milk. And even now in a lot of cultures, it's not really looked on warmly because camel milk is supposed to be given to sick people for free. And so, um, you know, only reluctantly do people start to sell it and they're doing it. Some people are doing it to make money, but the traditional camel cultures, you know, they, they hold it so special. They don't, it's never really been their thing to sell. So it's a, it's a symbol of hospitality. It's a symbol of healing and all that. So they now are getting to the point, the Rika people in India, where they're, you know, considering doing dairies and they're doing a micro, few micro dairies. But, you know, I went over to kind of give them some ideas on how they could do it, what it means, how to reach their market, what autism is, what kind of things consumers want. And, you know, I don't speak the language, but, uh, translation helped a lot. And um, now they're doing some micro dairies, but the camel's under threat there. The funny thing is it's a symbol of Rajasthan. It's like the state symbol, but the restrictions have made it almost impossible and the numbers are dropping rapidly and the people are going without, you know, the money and it's a dying culture. So we're still trying to, to get people to recognize the value of that culture. But, you know, India is, um, you know, a big market and it takes a lot of money and regulation changing and so uh, Dr. Ilsa Kohler Rolefson of Camel Charisma is working on that over there. And so um, I like to try to support support their work. And um, I actually just got named to the honorary board of the some kind of ethno veterinary medicine in India. Um, so that's a nice uh, a nice thing for me that I can keep up on what they're doing to help the camels and their animals. So as somebody who's deeply into the, the world of cannibals and for a Westerner, perhaps there's no one deeper. Uh, what do you see globally as you look at, like, what is this, the state of camels right now? Well, it's interesting because um, it's now, um, because of the demand for the milk, it's the second fastest growing livestock in the world. So that's pretty amazing. And these economic forecasting firms have been forecasting, you know, very sharp growth, um, like seven to 10%. And, uh, it's, it's really good in some ways. It's, I mean, it used to not have a profile. I mean, used to, if you put camel milk on the internet, pretty much I was going to show up. So now you put it on there and it's like, all oh, these things show up. So that's great. You know, I wanted it to go to the general public and, and it has. So it's still though, like the most misunderstood animal. It's funny too, because let's take the other cultures that have camels. So they know about them. They're proud of them, but they don't really you know, it's even the modern cultures have lost touch with the power of camel milk. So they're like us, you know, they're westernized in a lot of ways. They've lost touch with it. They've lost that heritage knowledge. And in America, we never had that heritage knowledge. Um, Australia also, you know, so it's a very hard thing. And because it's not a product that the FDA, you know, somebody would have to make a drug application, which costs, you know, multiple millions of dollars um, to do all the work to be able to say, oh, it helps autism, you know, in a drug manner where you could market it, patent it, and sell it. And nobody's going to do that because it's a natural product. There's no incentive, you know, really at this point. Um, so without that, you know, imprimatur from the, quote, FDA, then people don't really realize that it's such a serious product. And so it never, it doesn't get the respect. It's an outlier. So that's why, you know, here I am kind of translating um, you know, the research into the vernacular and trying to push it forward. Um, so um, at least it's happening. It's, you know, still outside the mainstream, but it's entering the mainstream. That's the good part. I mean, when you can walk into, you know, a, um, 
a Bristol Farms uh, luxury grocery store, or you can go on Amazon and have, you know, camel milk at your door in two days. That's success. <laughs> it's amazing. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to this, but I don't think it's an understatement having read the book to say that, that you were the spark that has changed this landscape, that, that that's why it's possible. Well, I will say that, um, yes, I would agree with that. I mean, I don't know if, you know, it's not like anyone's life goal to ever set out and say that I'm going to become the camel milk person, you know, unless you're maybe from that culture. And I, it's not a life goal that I saw, but I am proud of it because it has taken a lot of work and it was my idea. And um, it turned out to be far more rich than I ever expected. And I'm very, very happy. And I do feel that it's helping a lot of farmers and people, you know, make income and for them to be able to stay on the land, the Amish farmers in America, you know, that are using it and it does have great effect on so many uh, people, they're able to stay on their land and we need to have our green spaces maintained. And, you know, in the other cultures, they're making money. So everybody, you know, is all the farmers are doing well. The Indian people have a harder time right now, um, but they're they're slowly you know getting some things together on that there are dairies in india um so on the whole it's something that didn't exist before except a little bit i mean there was rising demand in africa before but it wasn't like this so um really what changed a lot was that 2012 article i wrote called got camel milk and then the science article and then now um youtube videos i've done and stuff like that that people write me from all over so that's how i know you know that what they're seeing but hey if it can make people's lives with diabetes rheumatoid arthritis food allergies gut disorders autism um, a lot of these issues that we're facing today in rising number if it can make their lives better then um it's something that i'm you know happy to have helped with oh it's an amazing accomplishment let's Thank let's you. think a little bit toward the future because i think one of the powerful moments in the book is that you see the camel as potentially um, a solution to how the landscape's going to change with global warming um, and as a, as a solution to perhaps all of the carbon emissions and damage that's being done through cow raising. Well, it's so funny because I was out in the desert this weekend um, in California, but boy, was it remote. I was way out in Imperial County and I passed a cow lot um, which is kind of weird way out in the desert town where there's nothing but a tiny town and mountains and, you know, sandy dunes and stuff. And there's a cow lot and the cows were contained and they were standing in churned up mud on top of each other in like a square, a rectangular lot. And all around them was endless miles and miles and miles for them to roam. And so those cows are getting, you know, I can't presume exactly what they were getting, but, you know, one would assume that they're getting, you know, antibiotics used on them because the churning up of the mud and the feces and all that tends to create diseases that they need to be treated with those. And then, you know, they're not, doesn't look like they're getting any grass feeding and, you know, there they are. They're not in, engaged with the land around them. They're not getting any grazing. I don't even know if they were getting much sunshine. There was a roof on the thing. So, that was so, and I was, my son was with me and I pointed that out to him. I'm like, look, that's what your hamburger's made of. Cows standing and churning mud and poop and stuff. It's yucky. And so that's probably, this kind of big ag is probably part of the backlash against agriculture that's starting to come up in this, you know, kind of move toward a plant-based diet. And I really do, you know, like 
I think a lot of our diet should be composed of plants. However, um, artificial meat and stuff like that is made of things that are not that great. Um, and it's not going to have some of the nutrients that meat does have. And I'm in meat in small portions from, you know, carefully raised animals that are getting some grazing and things like that, sustainable regenerative agriculture. That's what we should have. And the camels are amazing because they can live in very harsh environments. They can live and eat plants that are, you know, scrubby desert plants. And they're very low water. They're very low, um, you know, poop. Their poop is like little tiny hamster droppings, like little dusty balls. So it's not nasty like some animals. And yes, I can't believe I'm talking on a show about poop <laughs> as much as I have. But these things happen when you get into agriculture and biology, I suppose. But uh, so camels are very sustainable. You know, so there are families that live off two camels, you know. They, they drink the milk. They use the, uh, the camel in other ways. So is that practical in America for everyone to have camels? No, but it is practical for us to reserve space for farmers that can maintain cow and camel and goat and sheep um, agriculture the way that it was meant to be. So those kind of people, though, don't have a voice. They don't have much of a lobby. So part of my thing in the book is that I've gotten to know all these nomadic cultures and pastoral people. And, uh, you know, I went to Alain, too, which is in uh, uh, Abu Dhabi, and met Bedouins. I went to the ancient camel souk, and so you can read about that um, with me in the book. And um, I learned a lot about the old ways and the things that we have lost that still have value to us. So I just think that this move toward regenerative agriculture would be something we should support rather than, you know, just uh, fake meat made out of seaweed and then sometimes products that aren't so great for for children in our bodies so what can i say i just think uh, it can't solve all our problems but it sure could solve a lot you know mm -hmm. this kind of move with camels at the forefront plus it's a natural pharmacy i mean the farmers the the nomads call it nature's pharmacy and camel milk of course it can't solve everything but it is amazing how much it does address if you get you know milk that, that is i do say raw is the most powerful and the best we're lucky in this country we don't have MERS. We don't have um, that kind of issue. And so our raw milk here, our farmers do have vet care. Our farmers do test the milk. And so we've been very fortunate. We do have safe supplies of raw camel milk in this country. Other countries, you know, you have to be careful based on where you are and what the diseases are. So I always tell people, look, you contact, you know, your farmer and ask them, you know, what is, what's the herd management? What are your uh, tests? But, uh, you know, nomads have been living off this stuff, you know, for centuries. And so they're the better for it. And I would like to see us adapt just some of the ways that uh, would make sense for us at this time in a lot of ways. I'm excited to see how your book and the work you're doing continues to ripple outward. That's what I'm hoping will be the case. Um, is your journey right now as a writer and as a parent and as a public activist still one that's centrally defined by and focused on the camel? Or are you moving uh back to that novel you were writing or in some other direction? Oh, very writerly question, which I appreciate. So um, I had a great time writing Camel Crazy and researching it. Obviously, you know, the uh, the book has some dramatic ups and downs and um, and I liked writing that and being getting to be so descriptive and, um, you know, um, putting things out there that haven't been out there yet. And um, it was fun digging into the science and all that. Um, so I did have a great time writing it. Um, however, though, I'm thinking, huh, do I, do 
I keep going on with this kind of way? Because now I have two nonfiction memoirs behind me that contain useful information, but are nonetheless, you know, I got to use my literary skills. So now I'm thinking, huh, do I do a novel? Maybe. Or am I going to do another book like this? Or am I just going to, I don't know. So I can't answer that. But um, I'm kind of in the middle of this, you know, journey here. I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting close to you know, the apex of putting the camel word out there with the camel crazy book. But maybe I will um, write a novel. I don't know. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. So so let's say there's a listener out here, out there that has heard what you're saying and, and they've got that kind of voice in their head like, well, give it a try. Give it a try. I mean, what would you recommend? Like, what would be the first go-to thing to do like you know they're they're there in their headphones on the bus or in the gym or something and what should i do go to amazon order yeah go to go to amazon or go to your local bookstore and get this book and i'll tell you why (laughs) um it's not like it's going to make me rich or anything no don't think that but it's so much work trust me this is a lot of work and you're going to read things on the internet about camel milk some are really 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 true and it is amazing others they're not super accurate so I've worked very hard, and my publisher, New World Library, also worked very hard. They um, they provided me, you know, a, a science-based editor that we worked together to just clarify everything um, in a, you know, really easy format. So this is a ton of work. You know, get yourself this book, and you'll get almost all the information you need. Um, plus, chapter 15 is really, quote, the science chapter. So it's got all the kind of questions you would ask, and if a doctor wants to know why, why do you think this is true? Or you got some skeptical family member, they can read chapter 15. There are tons of footnotes in the back for the nerds that want to dig into it. And uh, there's a user's guide in the back. So you will have all your questions answered. Where do I get it? How do I use it? What do I need to know about? How do I thaw it out if it's frozen? What about the raw versus pasteurized, blah, blah, blah. It's all in there. So, um, and there's also a list of sellers globally, both in the United States, but then in every country I could come up with, uh, you can get it there. So you can spare yourself a lot of twisting agony um, if you just want to get the book Camel Crazy. But um, And it's available in any bookstore, uh, Barnes & Noble, etc. And for international readers, it's uh, available on um, a book depository free shipping. But you can pretty much get it anywhere. But I would say also, if you just have the slightest sense, like if you have like a gut issue, or if you have milk doesn't sit well with you, or if you just feel like, oh, there's diabetes, you know, in my family and I feel like my blood sugar is not so great, um, then give it a try. So first of all, you're just, you know, supporting a farmer, which is great, a camel farmer. It's not big ag. Second of all, you're going to get a healthy supply of milk, which is going to give you excellent calcium and other things like that. So you're not going to be making a mistake. Third of all, if it actually helps you, then that's the most amazing thing. So um, and then fourth, you'll have something fun to talk about with your friends. It's true. I'm going to leave this on the edge of my desk so that as students come and go from my office, they'll they'll inevitably ask me about it and I'll say, you've got to try this. You've got to try this. Yeah. Christina Adams, thank you so much for your time and being on the New Books Network. Thank you. And you guys can visit me at christinaadamsauthor.com. And uh, I wish you all the best with your food and camel adventures. We will certainly link you through the network. Thank you. Bye, bye Eric. Bye-bye. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Christina Adams, author of Camel Crazy, on the New Books Network.